0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Uh, This evening, we want to continue again our theme uh, for this past three services uh, called The Comforter Has Come. So I want you to come with me to John's Gospel, chapter 16. John's Gospel, chapter 16. Jesus, addressing his disciples here, said, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, sometimes people get a little bit confused by this because in chapter 13, actually, Peter asked him that very thing, in acts chapter sorry in John chapter thirteen uh, in verse thirty one when he had gone out, this is whenever the the traitor Judas had betrayed him, had gone out, and when he had gone out, Jesus said, "Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him." in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer, and you shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love to one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And so had Jesus forgotten that Peter asked him that question? I don't think so. But I think what it's implying is that Peter was asking the question for the wrong reasons. Peter's asking that question for a selfish reason. What he was really saying is, Lord, you're going, but what about us? What about me? What about our ministry? When you go, what's going to happen to us? And so he was thinking along those lines. He was not thinking about, Jesus, where you're going, it must be wonderful. You must be excited because you're going back to the Father who sent you. That must be a thrilling thing for you, Jesus. No, he didn't say any of those things. All he was concerned about was how he felt. What am I going to do? You know, there's a... I suppose it's only natural when you're grieving, say. And, and, and in and a way, they were beginning to grieve here. If you were grieving, you lost a partner, a loved one, you lost a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, and particularly if they were young and in their prime, your first thought would be, what am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? This is my loss. This is my hurt. I'm grieving. I miss them so much. And that's only natural. But we're not really thinking at that moment, but what about them? They're gone to the glory. They're going to be in the presence of Jesus. They're going to see him face to face. They're going to walk the streets of gold. Now, in grief, we are naturally, I'm not saying it's wrong, but we're naturally thinking of our loss and our hurt. And our grief. And that's what Peter was doing. So it wasn't that Jesus had forgotten he'd asked that question, but he really was asking it for the wrong reasons. And so then he continues. Now, I go away, but if I go away uh, to him who sent me, none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have sent these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Or if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father, and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now throughout the long history of the church, there's always been a, a renewal of interest in the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's true that there's been times, sometimes for generations, that the Holy Spirit was hardly ever even mentioned in church almost as if he never existed. But Pentecostals and Charismatics in particular, I suppose, have always been quick to highlight and to emphasize uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the infillings of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and that's good. But yet, yet, we've often been slow to recognize the very gracious work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the unbeliever. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Now the disciples, Jesus told them clearly he was going away. They were heartbroken, probably a little fearful, because he told them, when I go, you're going to be persecuted. In fact, there'll come a time Peter will not just put you out of the synagogues, they will actually put you to death. And that literally happened, didn't it? Saul of Tarsus even went to Damascus in order to arrest Christians and bring them back and have them, have them killed. Have them, uh, and he even stood at the very feet of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, And so, by the way, after 2,000 years, things hasn't much changed. The most two persecuted groups in the whole world today are Christians and Jews. The Christians are the number one persecuted group in the world today. So things hasn't changed that much. So they needed the Holy Spirit then. Surely we need the Holy Spirit today. And so these disciples had Jesus for three and a half years. And during that time, they were still confused somewhat of who he really was and what he had come to do. Now there was flashes, there was moments, uh, there's the classic one, of course, where, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. And no others, Peter, you never would have known that except my Father revealed that to you. And so they were, they were confused at times. They weren't too sure, well, why had he come? Had he come to set up this political kingdom as they thought to keg out the Romans? That wasn't why he came at all. But after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, then suddenly they began to see things more clearly, and suddenly they began to truly realize the mission of Jesus, why he came, and what he came to do, and that they were to carry on that mission on his behalf. So having said all of that, let's just focus for a few moments tonight on this, the role of the Holy Spirit towards the unbeliever. Now... There's four verses here, and we read them. I'm going to quickly read them again, verse 8 to 11, uh, because uh, sometimes we misunderstand what this is saying. And so, chapter 16, verse 8 to 11. And when he has come, the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will convict or convince or reprove, depending on what translation you're reading, the word of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Some translations says judgment to come of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so, if you read that casually, you may get the impression and think that the whole business of sin, the word knowing about sin, the word knowing about righteousness, the word knowing about judgment to come, that it's all dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Not us. But actually, that's not true. And I'll show you why it's not true. Because the preceding verse, verse 7, what does it say? In verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, when he has come, where? To you. When he has come to whom? to you and so this lets us know that the holy spirit will work in cooperation with us and we should work in cooperation with the holy spirit mm-hmm. so the convincing the reproving the convicting of the word of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come is not all of the work of the holy spirit and it's certainly not all our work but it's the cooperation between the holy spirit and us That's what this is saying. That's what is required for the Holy Spirit to take our lives to work in us and through us in order to convince and convict the word of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. In John 14... In verse 15 he says if you love me keep my commandments and i will pray the father and he will give you another helper or comforter that he may abide with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will dwells with you and will be in you i will not leave you orphans i will come to you and then in 1st Corinthians chapter 2 and I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, let me just break into this, verse 6. Yet when I'm among mature Christians, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this word, and not the kind that appeals to the rulers of this world who are being brought to nothing. No, the wisdom we speak is the secret wisdom of God, which was hidden in former times, though he made it for our benefit before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would have never crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But we know these things because God has revealed them to us by his spirit. And his spirit searches out everything and shows us even God's deep secrets. No one can know what anyone else is thinking except the person alone. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And God has actually given us his spirit, not the Word spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you this, We do not use words of human wisdom. We speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But the people who aren't Christians can't understand these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them because only those who have the Spirit can understand what the Spirit means. We who have the Spirit understand these things, but others can't understand us at all. How could they? For who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who can give him counsel? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. So then, why preach? Why testify? Why witness if those whom we preach to, testify to, witness to, if they can't understand it? what would be the point? Hm? Okay, I want you to think of this. When Jesus came to this earth, he did not come in a vacuum. He came in a human body. He incarnated himself in human flesh and lived and walked amongst us. Now, he left, the Holy Spirit came. But the Holy Spirit needs someone to work through And so in a sense, the Holy Spirit incarnated himself in us. We become the temples of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says, because the Holy Spirit needs us. He wants to work through us. He needs us to witness, us to testify, us to preach. And when we do that, because we understand what we're talking about, when we do that, And allow that word to drop into the hearts of those who are seeking, those who are wondering, those who are thinking about eternal things, those who perhaps are wondering what life is all about, what's the answer to the great questions of life. Whenever we start to share these things, then the Holy Spirit takes those words that we say, and he implants them in the heart, and then bit by bit by bit, he begins to reveal what they truly mean. See, that's how we get saved in the first place somebody shared with us. It might have been a Sunday school teacher, it might have been your mum or dad, it might have been a friend at work. And at the start, we didn't know, but we were, we were curious, we wondered. But the Holy Spirit took those words and planted them into our hearts, and then bit by bit by bit, he began to reveal Christ unto us and eternity unto us, to the point where we finally surrendered and became believers. And so this is the work of the Holy Spirit wanting to convince and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Let's look at those three things tonight. First of all, of sin. When he comes, he will reprove or convict or convince the world of sin because they do not believe in me, Jesus said. Now, at worst, the world would love to banish Jesus. And various communist governments down through the ages have tried to do that very thing. Tried to dismiss Christ, do away with Jesus, no talk about him, try to do away with the Bible, the Word of God, shut down churches, and they didn't succeed. The more the Soviet Union did this against Christians, the more Christians went underground, and the more churches grew underground. And they just couldn't. They just couldn't stop people coming to Christ. They couldn't do it. They tried, but they couldn't. They tried to banish Christ. And then the the Chinese governments over the years have tried the exact same thing, try to banish Christ, no talk of Christ, didn't want Christ, didn't want God, didn't want the Bible, didn't want the Holy Spirit. But even the Chinese government found the more they did that, the more the church went underground and the more it grew, it exploded with growth until there's absolute untold millions of Chinese Christians. And by the way, the new Chinese government today is worse than ever. And now they've come back again, and they're trying to dismiss Christ. They're trying to change the Bible. In fact, they're going to have a Chinese Bible with with communist values rather than Christian values. And and they're knocking down churches, and they're burning churches, and they're arresting pastors, doing all of that. But it will not succeed in the end. It will not succeed. It will not stop people coming to Christ. It will make people more determined to come to Christ. It always has. Or, at best people tries to make Jesus out just to be a good man, a teacher, a religious icon, an altruistic idealist, maybe even a prophet of sorts, but not the Son of God. Definitely not the Son of God. But the church says, no. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. He is the one who went to the cross, who shed his blood to die for our sins. He's the one. And the more we say that, the more we're showing people that they're sinners and they need to be saved. Because that reminds men of their sin. Because there's no other reason for Jesus go to the cross except for us as sinners to save us from our sins. And so the Holy Spirit in and through us are witnessing, are testifying, uh, are preaching. It convicts men of sin and that they need a savior. Now, I love something Warren Wearsby said. In fact, I like a lot of things Warren Wearsby said. But one of the things he said, did you notice that it says the Holy Spirit will convict of sin? It doesn't say sins there. It says of sin, The law of God and our conscience convicts us of our sins. That's why the law was given, to show us that we had sinned. Before the law, we didn't know, but now we do know because the law says thou shalt not. And it's very clear. And our conscience tells us that also. But the one sin that truly damns us is the sin of not accepting Jesus as our Savior. That's the sin. Jesus said it, because they do not believe in me. (laughs) Because they do not believe in me. That is the sin that damns men and women to hell. Even if, even if, do you ever notice how, when people's about to come to Christ, how oftentimes they try to clean themselves up. Well, if I we could just stop that habit, if I could just stop that, if we could just stop going there, if we could just stop doing that. And we're, we're trying to present ourselves unto God in a better light. <laughs> but even if we did stop all those things, we would still be lost without Christ. Right. We would be damned forever without if we didn't accept Jesus, no matter how good we were, no matter if we went to church six times a week and prayed ten times a day and read our Bible from cover to cover. If we do not accept Christ, we are lost. This of sin, because they do not believe in me, Jesus said. That's the thing. In fact, in John chapter 3, that's proven very clearly in John chapter 3. And you know it very well, I'm sure. John chapter 3. And Jesus speaking here, verse 14: And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice the emphasis. But whoever believes in him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Why did he not send him into the world to condemn the world because it was already condemned? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, men of darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. And so what could be clearer than that? The sin that damns human beings is the fact that they don't receive Christ. Imagine Imagine if a man had a, a deadly but curable disease. They went to his doctor. His doctor says, yes, I know what you've got. And I can fix this. You don't have to die of this. I can give you a series of injections, or I can give you a course of tablets, and if you take it, And if you do it, you will live. Now, say that man refuses that remedy. And six months later, he dies. What killed him? Was it the disease or was it the fact that he refused the cure? I say to you, it was because he refused the cure. He didn't have to die, but he refused the cure, so he died. And what damns us? What kills us in the end? Refusing the cure, which is Christ. Christ is the one who forgives us all of our sins, and he makes us right before a holy God. And so this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do through us, is to convince men of sin, particularly, especially the sin of refusing Jesus Christ. If we can get people to see that refusing Christ is going to be the thing that damns them. If we can get them to see that, then they're on the road to recovery. There's a good chance they'll come to Christ and be saved. But they've got to see that first of all. Then he said, of righteousness, convince the world of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Hmm. Jesus had a very, very high standard of righteousness. You know, the Pharisees, they thought their standard was high. It didn't even come close to Jesus. How high was it? Well, all you've got to do is have a little look at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6 and 7. In Matthew 5, 21... Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Ah. Jesus is putting actually being angry with somebody without a cause on the level of murder. That's a high standard of righteousness, isn't it? And then he says, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, or empty head, (laughs) that's what it means, shall be in danger of the council. Whatever whoever says, you fool, you moron, shall be in danger of hellfire. Boy, that's a high standard, isn't it? Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go to your way, First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you up to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the very last penny. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Boy, this is getting really serious, isn't it? This is getting a really high standard. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you than one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for all your whole body to be cast into hell. Oh, I tell you, look at verse 43. And you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward of you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so also. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I'm telling you this for a reason. See the, the standard of righteousness that Jesus walked in. But he's actually saying that we should walk out. Now, I don't know about you, but I could not, I could not walk in that high standard except through the Holy Spirit. I could not do it in my own flesh. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can even hope to get close to that. If the world is ever going to be convinced of righteousness, it's only going to be because of us living out Christ's righteousness in our lives on a daily basis. Hmm? They watch what we do to see if it matches what we say, don't they? They look at the talk to see if that matches the walk. And if it doesn't, what do they say? You're a hypocrite. So we need the Holy Spirit to walk this way, don't we? It's a very, very high standard of righteousness that Jesus uh, has set up. Now, Jesus, obviously, as you know, was the most righteous, the most holy, the most godly, the most pure man that ever walked on the face of the earth. Ever, without exception. And yet, look how he was treated. By the religious Jews. Shamefully treated, horribly treated, despised, hated, and in the end, crucified, murdered. And the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaching his first sermon, highlights this for us. And so in Acts chapter 2, And he's preaching his first sermon and we haven't time to read all of the sermon but we're just going to break into it at verse 22 so he's in full flow he's full of the Holy Ghost he's preaching this great sermon that's just full of scriptures the Old Testament has come alive to him he's seeing things he never saw before he's anointed by the Holy Ghost to preach this he says men of Israel Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, that despised place, Nazareth. A man attested by God to you by miracles, by wonders, by signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16. Uh, What David said in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What was Peter doing? Peter was exalting the righteousness of Jesus. The one that they despised, the one they said was a blasphemer, the one they said was a drunkard, the one they said was Beelzebub, the prince of demons, the one that they put on a cross, the one who denied, they denied he was the very son of God. What does Peter do? Peter lifts him up and says, he's sitting at the right hand of the father. He is the son of God. He is the righteousness of God. That's how righteous he is, that God raised him up to sit beside him at his throne. Now you see, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince men of the righteousness of Christ. That he's not just a good man, that he's not just an exemplar, that he's not just some prophet of old. That he's not just a kind person, but he is the Son of God. That he is the righteousness of God. That he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That in heaven today, that's where he is. And that's what they've got to be convinced of. They've got to know that Jesus truly is the Son of God. That's righteousness. That's a right standing with God the Father. And Jesus has that right standing. And God raised him up to prove that. And then the third thing, Holy Spirit to convince the world of judgment <clears throat> or of judgment to come, as the original translation says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Hmm. There's a vast difference between the teachings of Christ and the philosophies of this world. The ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, has great sway, vast sway, over the minds of men in this world. And you can see it every day. We see the effects of it. We know it's devilish. We know it. We can see it. It can be nothing else. Certainly not godly, is it? And we see this... Throughout scripture, In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, let me just read you a couple of verses. In verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware anyone, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Ah. You see, there's a lot of philosophies, there's a lot of deceit today, empty deceit, traditions of men. This is actually against God, that's against the Bible, that's against the people of God, it's against the word of God. And it's taken that is taken as gospel today. That is taken as the truth today. And it's a lie. And it comes from the father of lies. And that's why I keep harping on about this. You have got to know the book. Read the book. Keep in the book. This will keep you right because all kinds of things will be swirling around your head when you watch the news, you watch TV, you listen to the debates. A lot of it you're going to get are the opinions of men. Some opinions of men are great and good, but a lot of it is nonsense. A lot of it is not from God. It's not godly. It's the philosophies of this world run by the ruler of this world. So we need to be careful of this. And then in... 1 John, uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. And this world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, when it's talking about the world here, it's not talking about this beautiful planet we're on. It's talking about the systems of this world, the philosophies of this world, the culture of this world, which is against God by and large, actually. So he says, do not love the world. Don't love that. Weigh that up, because most of it is against the things of God. So we need to be careful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, or imaginations that is too, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now listen, you have Mr. Richard Dawkins, who's the poster boy for the New Atheists. He goes about the world pontificating against Christianity and other religions and said we're deceived, we're totally deceived, there is no person as God. His whole life is against God and the things of God. And let me tell you, he has a lot of influence a lot of influence a lot of people are swayed by that because they want to be because if there is no God then there's no responsibility you can live how you like do what you like because at the end of it there's no responsibility you can live like a dog and die like a dog and be buried like a dog and that's the end of you but we know the Bible doesn't teach that that's against God that's the philosophies of this world so we need to be careful of all of that stuff and there's more but we'll leave at that that's said, and here's the good thing because the ruler of this world is judged, Satan has been judged, sentence has been passed. We just await the execution, and that's as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, and it's inescapable for Satan. <laughs> He can't, it's unavoidable he will, he will meet his execution day and that will be in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 where he will be thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are and that will burn forever and forever and forever that's what awaits the enemy of our soul and he cannot escape it he doesn't know when it's going to be but he knows that's ahead that's his sentence and it's just to be carried out and one day the father will say enough is enough today's the day and he'll be cast into the lake of fire now our part is to be God's herald of truth to hold this word up as the final authority to an unbelieving, sceptical, philosophy-soaked, sin-brainwashed world and declare that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's only the Holy Spirit that can give us the power to be able to do that. And through us, he will convict, he will convince the word of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. If a man is not convinced of sin, he will never feel the need for a saviour. It's only the man who's out in the sea who's drowning who's shouting for the lifeguard to come. It's because he's drowning, he knows he's in great danger, then he'll shout for the lifeguard. But if a man's not in any great danger and he doesn't feel he's in any danger, he'll not be looking for the lifeguard. If a man doesn't see that his sin, particularly his sin of not receiving Christ, if he doesn't see that that's going to condemn him to lost eternity, he'll not be looking for a saviour. But once he knows, once he senses, once he feels in his heart, I am lost. I'm a sinner without any hope. Then he'll look for a saviour. I remember years ago whenever we were teaching Evangelism Explosion in the church and we were taking people out to show them how to do it. I remember it was a lady in Lisburn. We were in her home for a couple of hours and we were talking and sharing and she was very self-righteous and, you know, she was a lovely lady and lived a decent life and all the rest of it. But we were were bit by bit by bit bringing her around to the place where none of that would save her. Where none of her good works, even going to church, even praying, none of that was going to save her. And so we got her to that place where finally she had a light bulb moment. And she could see that. And it was a shock to her. And it took a while to get to that place. And here's what she said. But she says then, What hope has anybody got? Because all her hope was in her. But when, the, when, when all, uh, whatever she would do would not be enough, she, she genuinely, you could see, she just, you could see her lightbulb. But what hope has anybody got? I says, you see, none of us has any hope within ourselves, but we do have a hope, and our hope is Jesus Christ. And suddenly she could see that. She had never seen that before. She went to church all of her life, but she didn't get it. She thought just going to church was enough. She was a decent person. She paid 20 shillings in the plow. She was a spare woman. That was enough, but it wasn't. And once she saw that she was condemned before a holy God, then she says, what hope has anybody got? <laughs> Our hope is in Christ, isn't it? So we need to convince them of sin and of righteousness, having a right standing with God. You see, once a person is convinced that they're a sinner and they need saved, they need to know that they can have a right standing with God. They need to know because Christ has a right standing with the Father, that they in Christ can have a right standing with the Father also. They need to know that. They need to see that. They need to see this is beyond them. This is outside of them. If they're going to be righteous before God, it's outside them. It has to come from somewhere else, and that is through Christ. Once they're in Christ, then they too are the righteousness of God in Christ. That's what happened to us. We became righteous, not of anything we did, or we were, but because we put our trust in Christ, who is righteous, who stands at the right hand of the Father. We put our trust in him, and lo and behold, we were made the righteousness of God in Christ. You see, this is what the Holy Spirit does to convince us. This is what the gospel is. I'm stretching out a bit for you to understand the parts of it, but this is what it really is. And then they need to understand... The judgment to come they need to understand that Satan and sin is defeated they need to understand that because their concern may be how am I going to live this Christian life if I receive Christ as my Saviour how am I going to overcome my sins how am I ever going to come my habits How how am I going to fare with my family and my friends and all the rest of it? How am I going to do if I am tempted? What am I going to do if temptation comes? How am I going to overcome that? They need to know that the tempter has been defeated. They needed to know that Satan, the, the tempter of our very souls, and listen, he will tempt us to the day we die or we're taken by the Lord. He will come and tempt us. Even Jesus in the wilderness, and it says Satan departed for a season. But he always comes back to tempt. So we need to know that the tempter is defeated. There's no trial that is has overtaken you. Such as common demand. But with the temptation, God will what? Make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so if somebody says to you, if you lead somebody to Christ and say, well, if they say, well, I don't know how I'm going to avoid it. How am I going to overcome this temptation? You say, because the tempter's been defeated. And now you've got the Holy Spirit to give you strength and to give you the grace And to help you overcome. And even if you did slip, and even if you did fall, Christ will pick you up again, dust you down, and send you on your way, and you'll be smarter and stronger the next time. And so, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convince, He will convict, He will reprove the word of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and they see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. what a friend we've got in the Holy Spirit are you beginning to see the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives every single day that we cannot successfully live this Christian life without the Holy Spirit can't do it it's not within us to do it but inside of us resides the third person of the Godhead God the Holy Spirit he gives us the strength and the grace to live this life. Come, we pray. Lord, we thank you for that promise that you made to the disciples and you made to us. That when you would return to the Father, that you would send one just like you, a helper just like you, the Holy Spirit, to come and live within us. And so we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his strength and his power and his wisdom, his fruit, his gifts, his abilities. We thank you for all that he does in us and through us that Jesus may be lifted up and glorified. Lord, help us to be able to work with the Holy Spirit, to witness, to testify, to preach, and to point men to Christ and to be able to give an answer of the reason of the hope that lies within us. So, God, would you do that? Would you help us, through the Holy Spirit, to be able to minister into other people's lives for the glory of God? Now, as you go out into this week, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help you, to guide you, to give you the wisdom and the strength that you need, whatever you may face this week. Holy Spirit... Would you take every life in this house tonight? And as they go into their working week, would you guide them? Would you guide their steps? Would you guide their words? Would you give them wisdom? Would you give them understanding? And if they meet somebody who needs the Savior, Holy Spirit, do your gracious work through them into that life. So we ask you to help us this week, every day. Give us grace and give us help to live this Christian life that Jesus may be honored and glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk